Ladies and gentlemen, here's a little sneak peek of what's coming up on the Bible Reloaded. Gentlemen, we're on a mission from God. We have to hunt down and find a baby and give him some gifts. I don't believe in your God. No, King Ray, this is legit. God spoke to me. This is intellectual suicide. Now's not the time to be doubting ourselves. These questions occur to human beings. Of course they do, King Deepak, but I need you to saddle up your crocodiles. Yeah, it's up and running. We've got to hit the road to somewhere called uh, Bethlehem. So I'm not here to convince you that you should believe in anything. Exactly right. We've been instructed to follow this star. Siri, lay in a course for Jesus. Hello? Hello? It's questionable Adam here via subspace link now that the Syrians have perfected their time machine. The year is 2073 and I'm still doing this ridiculous podcast, but now I do it standing in a cardboard box outside a supermarket, reading chapters from Joel Osteen's book, whilst people point and laugh at me for not having white enough teeth. Religion still exists, and it's worse now than ever before because we have seven popes. North Korea is now an Islamic nation and Russia has just allowed homosexuals to drive hoverboards for the first time. A lack of critical thinking has hamstrung our planet, especially Tibet, which is now completely submerged due to global warming. But you can help. In the last 40 years, the show has managed to raise over 37 bitcoins when accounting for inflation. The logs show that in the year 2013, less than one half of 1% of the listeners donated to support the show. You can change this. With additional funding, the show can reach a wider audience. My past self will be able to earn an honest dollar and donate 10% of the proceeds to keep it on hold to improve the lives of others. It'll also allow me to buy a new cardboard box today. Head to herdmentalitypodcast.com and click the support tab at the top of the page. It's possible to set up a recurring payment each month of $2, $5, 10 whatever you feel is reasonable in return for the enjoyment you gain from the show. This show is as much for you as it is for me, by a person, for the people. Past Questionable Adam and present day Questionable Adam, thank you very much. And with your support, we can rewrite history. I'll get your announcer voice going. I'll give you a vocal warm-up, guys. Repeat after me. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. Hmm. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. It's very musical. (laughs) I think think you've missed your calling. You should be reciting poetry or some such. Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, at Adam Reeks on Twitter, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Herd Mentality, another off-the-cuff edition. With me today, I have Jake, who is the better 50% of the Bible Reloaded. Welcome, Jake. Oh, thank you. Hello. And on the other side, I've got Joe Sinkowski. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Rightio. So, uh, Jake, you've been on before, so we know everything there is to know about you. Uh, But, Joe, (laughs) what do you do? Where are you from? Well, I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I settled out here near... St. Louis. Right now, do 
home remodeling and construction and that sort, which is a little bit slow right now. So I like to keep busy working with my hands. Right, yeah. And you're, we'll, we'll discuss this perhaps at the end of the show, but uh, I believe you're also an author. Yes, I've uh, written four books. I'm actually working on my fifth right now. Try to keep myself busy and write books that you know I believe are pertinent and important and uh, relevant. Proud of my uh, newest book that's uh, going to be coming out soon, which I can't wait to get it done. Cool. All right. Well, we'll get links and so forth at the end of the show. So today we're doing a little bit of um, a relaxed debate covering the topic, Is God Perfect? And in the affirmative, we've got Joe in the red corner. And for the negative, we have Jake in the pink corner. Is that, <laughs> uh, is that fair? Sure. <laughs> and in order to do so, we have to have some sort of structure. Uh, that being that I'm going to, rather than take any position at all, I'm just going to have utter disdain for my guests uh, <laughs> and ridicule everything that comes up. But I'll try to keep it fair and I'll split the time equally. Over to Joe, who's going to give his intro statement. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, my opponent here tonight. appreciate the host. And I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts and feelings on this uh, most worthwhile Topic. Of course, with the question, is God perfect, it assumes um, that there is a God. And if there is a God, I guess the question comes down is, is he worth serving? I've heard many people give many, many bad opinions, I believe, about God. And to them, I would say, I wouldn't worship a God like that if I believe that about him uh, anyway. According to the Bible and, and my beliefs, is that God is perfect in every single way. He is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and perfectly righteous. Even you can make the argument that an eye for an eye is about as fair as you can get. And that's the way we see God in the Old Testament when he was direct leader over the Jews. Now, when we say that God is perfect, we must give a qualification. or We, we must give a caveat uh, to explain this. One thing atheists are pretty notorious for doing is throwing an illogical uh, component into the situation. For example, the one common question that atheists have always asked is, or even skeptics, that if God is so, is God so great that he can make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Now, if you unpackage that, you can see that there's a built-in contradiction in the question. Kind of like in math, if you ever realize that two numbers, two negatives times each other will always give you a positive. So what they do is give you a square root of negative one, which they say i. i is the square root of negative one, therefore the square root of negative nine would be three i. And that is building in a contradiction into the statement. And in my estimation, I believe that that's what evolution has done, that has thrown an eye into our lives, an illogical quotient. For example, one of the things that God can't do, and thank God he can't do them, because that would make God illogical, is God can't lie. So the uh, illogical uh, part that they're putting in is, well, if God can't do something, then God's not all-powerful or God's not perfect. Yet, 
if God could do this, then God wouldn't be perfect anyway because God lied. So we see a built-in contradiction. Something else I must uh, preface and say that God can't die. And thank God because one of God's nature, part of God's nature, is his eternal nature. Therefore, if God is eternal, God can't die because uh, there is no end with eternal. God can't be illogical. God can't be illogical or unreasonable, which is another thing that God can't do. God can't create something eternal, because by definition, what God created has a starting point, therefore cannot be eternal. Now, I'm sure one thing I hear is, how could God create Adam if he sinned? How can God be perfect if God created Adam who sinned? The question comes, did God know that Adam would sin? Of course. God knows everything. But did God make Adam sin? And that's, of course not. If God made Adam sin, that you couldn't judge Adam for being wrong if God made him sin. But in order for God to give Adam free will, there had to be that potential for evil. And that's what happened. God created Adam with free will. Adam, in his free will, chose to sin. Could God have forced Adam to not sin? Yes. Could God have forced Adam to not sin without taking away his free will? No. The potential had to be there, and Adam was the one who actualized it. Perfect comes from the Hebrew, tall meme, which means integrity, truth, without blemish, full, complete, and sincerely. And we see in the dictionary, perfect means lacking nothing essential to the whole. We see God as a self-sustaining entity, that he needs nothing, and everything that has life and breath comes from him. The Bible says that the, the Lamb of God who would come would be without defect or blemish. And this is exactly what the definition of perfect is. We see, if you want to know the nature of God, you have to look no further than Christ, who is God, who lived a perfectly sinless life. He was the one who was without sin and without blemish. When John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see in the Old Testament that the Lamb was without blemish. And not that people will take this as uh, authority with the Bible, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says over and over, First Peter 2.22, that Jesus was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he was attempted in every way like we were, yet without sin. What's the author's belief about God? We see in Psalm 18.30, King David says, As for God, his ways are perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield. Moses said about God in Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. So we see the writers of the scriptures believe that God was perfect. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody would want to worship or serve a God who isn't perfect. Because if God could make mistakes, then there's other ways God could make mistakes. And lastly, let me say about God's perfect plan of salvation. Creationists are right, then there is a perfect plan that God put in place. God created this world in perfect wisdom, and man was the one who sinned and wrecked the world. 
But God loved man so much that he came here and paid for our sins. Uh, one of the remarkable things about Scripture, which was written over 1,500 years with 66 books, is we see the perfect symmetry with Genesis and Revelation. We see the entering of sin, death, and pain in the beginning of Genesis. And at the end of Revelation, we see the, the remedy. We see the paradise lost in Genesis, and we see the paradise restored from a common thread throughout the scriptures that show God as a just, holy, loving God who loves people, wants them to do right, and the progressive revelation culminating in our New Testament. And with that, I will turn it over to my opponent. Thank you very much, Joe. That was excruciating. I look forward to what Jake has to say, which I'm sure will be absolutely dire and terrible. Let's hear it, Jake. (laughs) thanks uh thanks adam you're a really nice guy i also want to thank joe just before i begin gotta be honest didn't expect you to say yes necessarily but i'm really glad you did it took it not only did it take balls but it just you know it shows a little bit of a mutual respect and i appreciate that i'll begin my argument isn't a it's a two-parter i'll have my first set of premises for my first argument and i'll just i'll outline those and then i'll have my second and the same okay So my first premise is uh, the problem of non-God objects. A non-God object is just that, anything created that isn't in fact God. In the words of J.P. Moreland, to say that God is perfect means that there is no possible world where he has his attributes to a greater degree. God is not the most loving being that happens to exist, but he is the most loving being that could possibly exist. So So that God's possessing the attribute of being loving is to a degree such it is impossible for him to have it at a greater degree. Uh, consider the concept of God world. Uh, this is just a term made up. It's just a possible world in which God never actually creates anything. So he's the only thing that exists. If we presume that God does exist, we can assume that God world could exist, since the act of creating the universe or any non-God object was a choice that was not born of necessity. Proposition 1. If the Christian God exists, then God world is the unique best possible world. Proposition 2. If God world is the unique best possible world, then the Christian God would maintain God world. Proposition 3. God world is false because the universe, or any non-God object, exists. Conclusion, therefore, the Christian God, as so defined, does not exist. Uh, Justifying premise 1. If God exists, he is an ontologically perfect being, meaning that he is those great-making properties to their maximal composable degrees and no such properties to any lesser degree. A world comprised of only the maximally great being for eternity would be a world comprised of all those great-making properties to their maximal composable degrees and no such properties to any lesser degree. Unless there is some source of unique goodness, goodness that exists outside of and fully independent of God, God world must be the unique best possible world. God world eternally sustains the highest overall ontological purity and, therefore, overall ontological quality to which no other world can compare. Therefore, it is the unique best possible world. Justifying part two. An omniscient being would be aware of the fact that himself existing alone for eternity as God world is the unique best possible world that could ever exist. And because God is essentially morally perfect, he couldn't have had a motivating reason to intentionally alter the overall maximum purity and therefore the quality of the unique best possible world. Because any alteration in overall purity by the introduction of a universe or any non-God object such as people, animals, etc. would by necessity be a degradation of overall purity and therefore over 
overall quality. God wouldn't introduce limited entities, each with their own unimpressive set of degraded God-making properties like the creation myth of Genesis records. While Adam and Eve clearly do have great-making properties, knowledge, power, etc., uh, they have them to an unimpressive degree, and so introducing such beings would result in a degradation of overall ontological purity and therefore a degradation of overall ontological quality. To suggest God is in the degradation business is to suggest he wasn't maximally great in the first place. Proposition 3 uh, is the easiest to justify. It can be justified merely by a simple recognition that you yourself are not God. My second premise is called the non-perfection of God as displayed in the Bible. If God is perfect, he has certain qualities that make him such. These qualities are called great-making properties, like I outlined above a little bit. Things like omniscience, being able to know or see everything in any context always. Omnipotence, being able to affect or act on everything in any context always. And omnibenevolence, being good or loving all the time towards everything in any context always. Now this is a problem, even within the doctrine of the Holy Bible, of which this particular God derives its properties. So proposition one, God is not omniscient, for he is not always in possession of knowledge of things that an otherwise omniscient being ought have. Proposition two, God is not omnipotent, for he cannot always influence the world, objects, or situations that otherwise omnipotent beings ought to be able to. And proposition three, God is not omnibenevolent, as he does not always love maximally the beings of this world as an omnibenevolent being ought to. So the conclusion, God displays moments or actions where he is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnibenevolent, therefore the Christian God, as so defined does not exist. So I'll justify premise one. In the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve successfully hide from God in the Garden of Eden just after eating of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil and discovering that they are in fact naked. After God finds them, he asks them questions like, who told you you were naked? Now for the sake of premise three, let's assume God is not being snide and is asking an honest question. How can an omniscient being not know the answer to this? Keep in mind that these are not the only people in the universe, so noise pollution isn't a problem yet. Another easy refutation of this omniscience is the presence of regret during the deluge, otherwise known as the Noah's Ark story. Regret is defined as a feeling of sadness, repentance, or disappointment over something that has happened or been done. This doesn't make any sense, as an omniscient god would have known before he even began creating a universe that the people he created were to be wicked, not to mention the drowning of everybody is in direct opposition of premise 3. Justifying part 2. The Iron Chariots of Judges 119 are probably the most famous in omnipotence failure categories in counter-apologetics, and the verse reads as such. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. I don't know what iron does to God, but if he can't act on it, then why did he make the earth's core out of it? That's like Superman making a house out of kryptonite. My favorite one, however, is God's seeming inability to forgive the sins of people, the sins of the people of the earth, without a human sacrifice in the form of Jesus. This crosses over a little into premise three as well, but let's disregard that for now. Why would God need to go through the trouble of creating himself in the form of Jesus to go and live for 30 years, preach a radical new form of theology, and then put up on the cross to die on behalf of all our sins and all the people of the world? Wouldn't it be easier, less cruel, and more just to simply forgive the people of their past transgressions? Tell them of this new covenant and move on. By the way, any introduction of new rules contradicts premise one. So anytime you change the covenant at all, it contradicts. Uh, justifying part three. I could bring up Noah's flood again or different verses in Exodus where God is, quote, burning with anger uh, or some other cruelty in the Bible. But I've decided instead to demonstrate that God is not omnibenevolent because he has the capacity for hate, which means that even if 1% of his actions are hateful, he no longer is maximally great because he's not always benevolent. The following verses are all from Psalms. 
Psalm 5, 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 6. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. 10, 3. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Uh, Psalm 11.5 The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Sorry for the old English, that was King James. <laughs> um, so my closing, these premises explained and defended. The conclusion we must come to is that the God of Christianity, as so defined, having that omniscience, omnibenevolence, and omnipotence, cannot exist given the current configuration of the universe or its properties. And that is my opening. Well, that was... Um... That was god awful, Jake. All those big words and so forth. I didn't. I didn't mean to disappoint you. I d- well, I wasn't disappointed. I slept for most of it. <laughs> so over to you, Joe. You've got uh, a few minutes to uh, come up with a rebuttal. Let's hear it. Well, let me uh, start off by saying that you mentioned a lot <laughs> Adam and Eve with God asking them, "Where are you?" or "Who told you uh, you were naked?" And to know that there's many times where we ask questions when we know what the answer is. And we do this to test somebody. When God said, where are you, didn't necessarily mean a physical location, but where is Adam's heart with God? Um, You know, as we know, God only gave one law to Adam, and Adam couldn't keep it. But we have to remember that it was man who brought sin into the world, and God is the one who gave us his perfect uh, law. The law was a reflection of the perfection of God. As a matter of fact, when God gave the law, he told the Israelites, Be holy, for I am holy. Jesus says in Matthew 5:48 the same thing, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, we need to, to understand that there has to be a caveat that needs to be understood as far as bringing in an illogical situation. And I'm speaking of God can't create somebody who's eternal because by definition, God created that person. So that person has a beginning point in time. And God can't take take away Adam's free will by forcing him or making him be good. I mean, as far as the flood, if you read that God was very frustrated that man had done what he did and brought sin into the world, and that God, because he's just and holy, must punish sin. Now, God, if he wasn't perfect, he would be able to have the sin dwell with him. But because of God's perfection, God must punish sin. My opponent said about, you know, why did God do it the way he did it? And... The reason is, is because sin, God is so perfect, in fact, that sin can't even dwell with God. And the sins of mankind must be dealt with. And that's where, you know, that's where the cross comes in. We see over and over that God is a God of love, but above all, God is just and holy. So God will bring judgment. To say that God can't bring judgment or that, you know, that God is showing some kind of hatred other than for evil you know, you can't do it. It's only the evil in this world that God hates. And as far as uh, the flood and God feeling repentance, we have to remember that there's a lot of anthropomorphic language used in the Bible. And when it says that God repented of the creating man, it's anthropomorphic language that God felt pain. The thing that God can't feel pain, I think, is, uh, you know, not uh, not what Scripture says, that we, we can hurt God. 
And it just needs to be looked at in the entireness of the scriptures, that there's an Old Testament and New Testament. When God was directly leader, ruler over Israel, he stoned people to, to death because he understood that man's evil will only get worse. And he did this because it's a reflection of his perfect nature that was being uh, violated. All right. Thank you, Joe, for your rebuttal. <clears throat> Jake, over to you. Any thoughts on what Joe had to say in his introduction? Uh, yeah. Oh, so the one of the first things he brought up was uh, the old uh, contradiction thing. Uh, can God create something so big he can't lift it? I agree with that. I agree with Joe completely on that. That's that's kind of a stupid question, actually, because anything with a paradox involved, whether or not you're omnipotent, I don't think that would I don't think you could ever breach paradoxes. At least it doesn't make sense to be able to. I agree also with the can't create eternal things because if it wasn't already there, it wouldn't be eternal by definition. So he's right on that. Uh, also can't die. I think that's intrinsic with being a maximally great being. I don't think having mortality would make any sense. So on all those points at the beginning, I, I, I agree with him. Uh, and then he brought up evolution, which I don't, I don't know why. Um, not really part of this necessarily in my opinion. So I don't really have a comment on that portion of his opening statement. But then he did uh, – he, he brought up the fact that um, Adam has free will and then that he was led to sin. Of course God knew he would sin and everything like that. Sure, that's that's viable. But um, couldn't he have just made Adam with better obedience while they were in like the prototype stage? Uh, wouldn't he – he wouldn't have been meddling with uh, free will if he wasn't uh, – if it wasn't already a thing yet. So couldn't he have just made Adam like – listen i don't i don't know it doesn't really make sense because if if he's creating the first people to sin immediately almost immediately i don't know i guess it doesn't really say how long they're in the garden of eden in the book but let's assume it's not really that long because they hadn't had kids yet then he he already goes into the plan knowing that he's creating people that are going to have sin and not only have sin but he created you you brought up later that uh man entered sin into the world well god created the system in which sin is a thing so i mean no matter what if you have a maximally great being that creates anything everything that he created because he knows every outcome of every action always sin is his fault even if it's by way of humans he still created the system in which humans have the capability of sin, which isn't necessarily a free will thing, because you can still have sin, but not the punishment system for sin. But that's still a thing, so you still go to hell for sinning. Uh, I do agree with Joe that says, uh, he, when he said, nobody would want to serve an imperfect God. That makes total sense. I agree with him. If he can make a, a mistake, what's the point? I also agree. But I think... The fact that regret is a thing in Noah's Ark that I used in my opening, I think that implies a mistake. And I know that you said, well, he was just disappointed. Sure, but how can you even feel disappointment if you already knew the thing that was going to happen? I, I feel like that would be more of just a, a self-fulfilling thing that, yeah, you, you were fully aware that when you drove your car off the cliff, your car was going to explode in one of those awesome 80s car chase fireballs. And you are going to die. But you can't be disappointed in the outcome because you know exactly how it's going to play out. This is the same thing. So how can you create beings and then claim that you're disappointed in them if you knew from before you even made the earth that they were going to end up causing you to drown them? Um, oh, and then you uh, you uh, answered uh, my um, opening statement question about the um, – uh, the question of Adam and Eve, where are you? And you said it's 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 more like a 
like a not necessarily literal, but where are you in your heart? Uh, and you use that as a test. Sure, I, I guess I can get on board with that a little bit, but you have to read into it kind of a lot. And maybe he was trying to get answers out of them like children. Sure, but that still comes across as a little, I don't know, snide. But I, I can, if, if you really, really want to read into something that I don't read when I see it, I can accept that as a solid rebuttal. That is all for that. Now, if you had any specific questions for me for the cross-exam, this would be perfect. I'll let Joe ask the questions of you, Jake. Right. But I, I would just like to add <laughs> that what you just said made no sense at all. <laughs> Well, thank you. Joe, let's hear it. Okay, well, let me, uh, before I get into a question, which I really uh, don't have at the moment, which I can work in, uh, I want to mention, talk a little bit more about Adam. And, I mean, there's times where you know somebody's going to do something, but you still feel bad when you do it, or when they do it. You know, I've had times in my life where I just know somebody's going to do something wrong. I just feel it. I don't know it for sure. But when they do it, you still have that angst of, you know, why did they do it? Now, God is omniscient, so God is all-knowing. God knew, true, truly, that Adam was going to sin. But I think you have to understand that God can't make Adam not sin. If God forced Adam or made Adam so he couldn't sin... There wouldn't be free will, would there? There's a question for you. The, the question of, is free will a thing? Or, like, how could we if, have free will if he didn't allow us to sin? The question is, if God made Adam so he couldn't sin, mm-hmm. then that would be, wouldn't that be taking away Adam's free will? Just, uh, just before you a- okay. answer that, Jake, I'd just like uh-huh. to butt in. I, I feel like this is a, a personal attack on me from, from both sides. <laughs> would you mind just changing the name Adam to Barry? Very response. <laughs> I'll see if I can try to remember. Right, thank you. How about that? Yeah. All right, okay. So when God created the first man, his name was Barry. <laughs> I'm kidding. So if if God creates a man, the first man, without the ability to sin, is that necessarily saying you're taking away his free will? I don't think so because he was the first. So that would mean that that was an intrinsic value within humanity from the beginning. But I guess for argument's sake, I will say yes. Sure, that is that is messing with free will if the idea is that humans were supposed to be how Adam is displayed in Genesis. If that is how it has to be. If that's the case, then it still remains that he, sure, he has the capability of sinning, but God created the framework in which to sin. So the way, the way he does go about sinning is God puts him in the, uh, in the garden and uh, Eve is there and she gets uh, not, I, I know it says tempted, but it's, it's more like warned. It feels like when I read it, uh, Hey, you're not going to die. So don't worry about it necessarily. And they don't die. And I know you're probably going to say, well, they they eventually die. They're no longer immortal. Okay, that's fine. But the way it's worded, it sounds more like imminent death, but that's semantics. That's fine. So they're in there. But the tree they eat of is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So doesn't that mean they don't necessarily have free will anyways? Because they don't have the knowledge to make a choice based on will. They just, they just do things. They're kind of like... 
I don't want to. It's kind of ripping off Batman movie, but uh, it's kind of like when the Joker says, I- "I'm kind of like a dog. I just see a car and I just chase it." Well, it's kind of like that. They don't know good or bad, even if they're told, because they don't have the knowledge of it, and they can't have the knowledge of it until they eat of that tree. So it really, it really doesn't make sense to say whether or not is that a violation of free will. It's more of did they even have free will in the first place? If they didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, well, one thing I, I want to comment, that God said that if you touch the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Mm-hmm. I may, in your opinion, think that it sounded imminent, but really it was a very accurate statement. God said, if you touch this, you will surely die, and Adam did die. So there's no problem there. There was a garden with filled with, with fruit. God gave one law. Just one, Adam. Just don't touch of this tree. So it doesn't seem like God was being overly, uh, you know, overly strict or anything just to give Adam one law. And that was all he had to listen to. But if God were to force Adam or Barry <laughs> to not eat of the, of the tree, that would be taking away God's free will. Or I'm sorry, Adam's free will. And that, that is a, a, an important point to remember that maybe it fits in the category of something that God can't do. God can't make Adam perfect because if, if God did do that, then he would have to, by necessity, take away his free will. Now, with free will, there is that opportunity that evil can come into the world. And God knew that that was a real possibility. As a matter of fact, God made a plan for that possibility. When I said about the perfect plan of salvation, you know, you have to remember that it doesn't stop there. God says uh, in Genesis 3.15, you know, he gives the plan of salvation, that someday there will be this time where the sin will be dealt with fully and and finally. And I think that, that really is, you know, where it comes down to is God can't force Adam. If God forced it, then there wouldn't be any free will and... That's uh, where I stand on that. Righty on. Well, that was a complete waste of time. Now, Jake, <laughs> have you got any questions for Joe? I'll ask one more question. Sound good? Yeah, go for it. Sure. Okay. In my opening statement, I mentioned God world and the uh, and God being the maximally great being, and why would he ever basically create anything less than perfection if he knew in fact that that is as perfect as anything could ever be why do you think since obviously that is not true and the universe exists what is your reasoning behind god's creation of all things i believe that god created everything in in perfect wisdom and i think he created us you know not only for fellowship with him but fellowship with humans like we've said, God can't create anything perfect or degrading, as as you would say. God can't create anything as good as himself. God couldn't create anything eternal. And I don't think that God can create anything perfect because only, only he's perfect. The question is, why did God create us? And I don't know, I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy that I'm able to partake in this world and, and come here in this debate. Uh, so I'm I'm personally very glad that God decided to do it. I think that he really did do it for us and for our glory to, to recognize his glory. 
And uh, it's a, a good question and definitely worth uh, more exploration. Radio, Fantastic. Radio. Okay, I'd like to keep these really short, sharp, and sweet. Now, I've got uh, a question here from At Skepticism First, and this is a question for both of you. What would convince you that your opponent is right? Jake? It'd have to be, I think, almost every skeptic, atheist, agnostic, anyone, really, um, would have to say definitive proof. And that doesn't necessarily mean stuff written down, but I mean, like, definitive, verifiable proof. Like, yes, this is how it is. And I don't necessarily know exactly what you could do besides have God act as he did in the Old Testament and be around and interact and and show himself and, um, you know, have very unnatural things occur on a mass scale and then have it obviously be God. Hmm. Other than that, I don't see anything happening out of the world of philosophy, physics, or biology, anything like that. I don't, it'd have to be basically the most direct proof okay that was complete drivel over to you joe what would convince you that jake is right well i think if uh there weren't any answers i think if if the things didn't make sense the answers i think if if we have seen things in this world that could just happen without a cause uh i would see you know, that, that there wouldn't be any reason or need for God. Um, if there wasn't a high moral code, if we didn't all have a conscience and, and have a sense of right and wrong, I would question uh, whether there would be a God that could be perfect and could be right if we didn't have a sense of right and wrong, which I think everybody has an innate sense of at least the fact that there's right and wrong and that they exist objectively i think that's about it right incomprehensible the next question comes in from at mcnick 85 the question for the debate would a perfect god allow the bible to contain incorrect or contradictory information and why joe well as i said if god isn't perfect he's not a god worthwhile if god makes mistakes then it wouldn't be worth uh, putting our faith and trust in him because he could be wrong. Uh, key points of our worship could be wrong if God could make mistakes. God reveals himself to us through scriptures as, as we believe. If there were mistakes in there, then that would be a good reason to disbelieve it and even reject God. But I don't believe that there are any. I believe that they can be explained one way or another, whether it's a copyist error, um, whether there's just not enough information, if how many times a non-answer non or non-argument people will use against the scripture. For example, and if we were in 1900, people would say, well, the Bible's wrong because Israel doesn't exist. If they waited till 1948, they would see that it does. So there's an art and science to biblical interpretation. I think it's very important to, to take the time and study to see if there's really mistakes and uh, no, the answer is it wouldn't be worth listening to the Bible if there were, in fact, full errors that don't have any explanation at all. Can I respond to that, Adam, or no? Yes, you're welcome to. Okay. 
you said if it had any errors, it's it's not okay. Um, King Saul dies four different ways in the Bible. In one Samuel thirty-one four, uh, it says he took a sword and fell upon it, so he kills himself with his own sword. In two Samuel one two through ten, it says Saul, at his own request, was slayed by an Amalekite, so death by Amalekite uh, on purpose. Later in Second Samuel um, twenty-one twelve, uh, we read that Saul was killed by the Philistines on uh, Gilboa, and then later in Chronicles. First Chronicles ten thirteen through fourteen, uh, Saul is slain by God Himself. Those are wildly different, and I think demonstrates at least one or three errors. What you haven't factored in here, Jake, however, is the fact that perhaps Saul was resurrected several times. Mm. Mm. I guess that could be could be the could case. Be but uh, in any case, your that your response to that was utter nonsense, Joe. <laughs> anything else you'd like to finalize on that before we move on? Oh uh, yes. Um, well, I. There's, I uh, would. Uh, it's been a while since I've studied that particular, and I have studied it, and I will uh, have an answer when I have a chance to refresh. But there's many uh, other examples of people saying, you know, that's clearly an error, and when it clearly isn't, or when clearly they haven't really done uh, much research. I mean, I've heard two different ways that Judas died. One says he fell headlong, one says that he hung himself, and you know, if you understood the Jewish tradition and that they wouldn't touch a body, uh, especially on the Sabbath, if they cut the tree down his his body would have fallen and his insides would have burst open. So really it's saying the, the same thing, but just two different ways. You're in a car accident and one says he died in a car accident and the other one says he died of massive head traumas doesn't mean that there's any any contradiction there uh, i will look up that other one and i know i will have to study it but i know that there's a very uh good explanation i will get on twitter and uh, uh talk about king saul's death but even they i believe are reconciled if you uh study each one and, and see what's exactly said there all right well okay. that, that's crystal clear that's brilliant thank you Kenny Wyland writes in and says, Can God be perfect if he forces David to act wrongly and then murdered 70,000 innocent Israelites for it? 2 Samuel 24. Well, I think you have to start with the premise that God is perfectly righteous and go from there. And one of the biggest, hardest times I had in uh, my Christian faith when I first started, you know, realizing these uh, incidents in the Bible where, you know, the flood is the prime example of God destroying, you know, the whole world. But we have many examples where God destroys the Hittites and kills every man, woman, and child. And I remember, you know, looking at this and just being aghast and, and you know, without understanding. But as time goes on and, and you start to understand that God is so just and so holy, and then you see that these groups like the Hittites were sacrificing their children. You know, they were having orgies to their God. And then when you read about the flood, and remember, during that time, people lived a lot longer. People lived hundreds of years. said that uh, Genesis 6-4 says that the thoughts of man's hearts were continually evil all the time. And with them living hundreds of years, they were only perfecting their evil. So God, in his righteousness, the reason he destroyed the whole world was because he knew, he knows that man left to his own without any kind of law will devolve into sex and violence is really what it ends up coming down to. I think we can look at the world today and know where sin leads to and that God 
brings judgment to stop it from getting to that point. Oh, yeah, very well. Jake, can you apply your tiny brain to this and perhaps <laughs> shed some light on what Joe's statement was there regarding if we start with the premise? I think under the premises that I presented, I don't see a logical fallacy in him allowing evil unless it's gratuitous. Uh, a gratuitous evil being one that doesn't cause either equal or or more betterment from its um, from from the evil that is being caused. If I uh, had more time, I was going to um, put that in my opening statement as well. The the problem with gratuitous evils, basically, evil is permissible under this model because he can't create maximally perfect beings alongside him. And because evil obviously exists, and if we, um, you know, suspension of disbelief for a minute, then obviously it is allowed. And that's okay as long as there's something better. So say, for instance, um, an example of evil being for the better would be uh, killing to defend your family. Killing is technically an evil, but if it's in defense of your family, it's it's weighed that it's actually better than just killing for no reason. Now... I think we all know things that uh, have happened in the world that are evil. And I think over the, let's call it the last 6,000 years of Earth existence, um, there have been at least one ca- at least one case, whether it's in the animal kingdom or the human sphere, it's, it's, probably, it's probable that at least one case of gratuitous evil has happened. Uh, that being something like two people on an island that no one has ever met or ever known. They just exist on an island. Obviously, this is hypothetical. Maybe they were castaways. Um, And everyone thinks they're dead. But it's just those two. Eventually, those two kill each other. And now they're dead. That is act of violence and evil. Not for betterment of anything else. It's just gratuitous. It doesn't matter. An example that Justin Sheeper of uh, the Reasonable Doubts podcast gives is um, the evil that is caused by chimpanzees on other chimpanzees uh, simply to gain more territory. Um, and because they're chimpanzees, and they, and they can feel torture, pain, and they have psychological um, pain as well. Uh, and say, say they're, they're, they're gang-murdered uh, by a mob of chimpanzees, which does happen in nature. Um, only to be finally brought out of this torture by death. That could be a case of gratuitous evil. So that's kind of where I'm at. 30 seconds. Anything to respond? Yes. You know, it's important that we, even in our own life, we'll suffer through pain to get better. We'll work out and go through pain because we know it'll come out stronger. We know that God allows things evil for his purpose. People can look and say, well, why does God allow this evil? Yet something really good came because of that evil. Whether it's the greatest human qualities of courage or caring that shine through, whether it's a Mother Teresa uh, and her love that shine through from evil, if we see somebody starving. Yeah, we're we're approaching the 30 seconds. Just the fact that there is evil itself, objectively, and that we know there's evil, shows that we know that there is good, objectively, and God must be good. Therefore, since we know that everything that God stands for is sin that's that's against him. That's Mm. it. Okay. Utter nonsense. 
Now, uh, Secular Bloke writes in one tweet. He's got uh, one that I think is probably more your field of expertise, Joe. Why do I have a redundant appendix that serves no purpose but can kill me? Well, I think uh, it, there's been more evidence of an appendix and its purpose. Um, I think people jumped the gun too soon to say that uh, the appendix serves no purpose, similar to the, the tailbone, or the, the Cossack bone. I think that there's people jumped the gun on that. And what's interesting to me is if we really started off as this tiny cell that came to life, and we're the human being that we are now, that means we gain thousands of body parts, skeletal system, immune system, bones, blood, everything, every body part. Yet they point to the appendix as something that's not used anymore. So they're actually pointing to uh, devolution and not evolution when they, they talk to parts like that. But the, the point is that uh, the appendix does have a purpose, and they, were, they jumped the gun. What is the purpose? Because I've got appendicoxositis, um, and I'm having both my appendix and my coccyx removed. But the the one differentiating point that I would uh, observe there is that perhaps the coccyx isn't capable of killing us on its own. So, guys, I'm going to award it to uh, me because, uh, well, I deserve it. And uh, you're both losers. Uh, Congratulations, to, yeah. mm, sir. Well, thank you. Can I, can I have a round of applause, please? Sure. Yeah? <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. All right. So, gentlemen, thank you for the debate. Uh, I'm sure that'll be an absolute monstrosity of an edit <laughs> to clear up. Anything you'd like to plug, Jake? Just the show, uh, The Bible Reloaded at BibleReloaded.com. Uh, we do Bible studies. We're coming back January 1st as episode one of season four. Back and better than ever. Yeah, should be a really good time. Very excitement. And uh, probably an apt time as well to mention the Secularite magazine that's uh, oh, part of our yeah. our mutual group of shows, uh, Secular Programming. The Secularite <laughs> magazine is now available on iTunes, I believe, for 20 two dollars or 23 dollars i think for a year's subscription nice value it is outstanding value people should really check that out mm. i think all right and uh, joe what's the title of your book and where can we get it well i want to thank you for uh, this opportunity i am still working hard on my book i do have a title i believe i'm going to keep but i'm not going to uh, uh give it right now until i uh finalize it but I do want you to know that I'm working working hard on it, and I, I think it'll really be a, a game changer. I think uh, you'll be interested, maybe even pleasantly surprised, and I will definitely keep you posted and be working as hard as I can to get it finished by sometime early next year. Excellent. Well, consider this an invitation to come back on the show for 10 or 15 minutes for some bonus material in the future to discuss that book. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I'll look forward to speaking to you on the Twitter thing. Thank you, sir. Great, great time. This week's bonus material is the feedback from all of the listeners, all five or six of them, who listened to Bernard Gaynor on the show. Hi, Adam. Uh, Glory Hornet MO here. The uh, morality and religion argument is quite a funny one because religious people say you need God to be moral, whereas in fact, in reality, what has happened is at every step through history, the secular 
version of morality has always usurped religious morality. They just don't realise that yet. The morality of the Bible and morality of the God story is completely abhorrent to today's society, yet religious people still keep trying to hold that. Every step throughout history, the secular version of morality has always usurped it, and religion has accepted that. They no longer stone gaze, you no longer have slaves. There's many examples of this. And somehow we just need to get the word out there so religious people realise that their morality doesn't come from God, it comes from a secular society working out what is the best way of us to continue as a species. Yeah, g'day Adam. Uh, just responding to Bernard Gaynor's episode of The Herd Mentality. You'll have the uh, access to which episode number, I think it's 32. Um, anyway, I've got a few points. I'll try and get them within a minute, but I'm no chance. Anyway, hear me out. Point one, his argument against homosexuality um, is illogical by the very definition and how we judge what is or is not logic. And I'll explain why. His premise was God says homosexuality is a sin, therefore homosexuality is a sin. Um, so basically on the first premise where he states God says homosexuality is a sin, it's a logical fallacy that we call begging the question because there's no evidence that God says that homosexuality is a sin because there's absolutely no evidence that God exists. Therefore, he's begged the question and we can actually probably just discard the whole statement and the whole premise or both premises that he is basing his um, judgment on there. So, rule a red line through that. Next, the other thing I picked up on your discussion was you came to the golden rule and he thought that that was a great thing and oh well yeah you live by the golden rule as we all do um, and he took that as a win thinking that you took that from the Bible which you probably did and that is a really good thing to take from the Bible but the only thing is um, and, 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 and I agree it's a great thing to take from the Bible but the golden rule predates the Bible by probably at least three and a half thousand years and it and it, it you know it first surfaces in books like the Hindu Mahabharata, the Babylonian Talmud, the Analects of Confucius, the Tibetan Dhammapada. So it's it, it, Christianity basically stole that, which was good. That's a good thing to steal. Um, and I think if, if if we all both theist and atheist could live by the golden rule hey, we wouldn't be arguing. It would be the best world we could live in. And finally, to wrap it up very quickly, sorry, I've been drinking for about 13 hours. I'm doing my best. Anyway, the last one, the, the, the thing that sort of pissed me off a bit about Bernard's whole interview, um, he did well as far as, you know, turning up, apart from that. <laughs> As soon as he spoke, it was lost. But anyway, he sort of went on to say, well, he was offended because to be a member of the army, he's not allowed to voice his opinion that uh, same-sex people can't marry. Well, guess what, Bernard? Um, that opinion is um, discriminatory. It's bigoted. Um, I, I'm employed by a private company, a Fortune 500 company. If I ever showed up to my work and voice my opinion that was in any way bigoted, be it on equal marriage, 
religion, any other subject that was showing discrimination in any form, I'd be sacked immediately. And it's as simple as that. And I think we're at the stage in life where we can, well, not you, Bernard, but the majority of us, we can agree that the best thing for society as a whole is let's try and minimise suffering, let's try and bring people to equality, let's be as equal as we can, treat everyone the same, and let's get on and let's spread the love and let's enjoy life. And I'm sad to see, Bernard, that you can't grasp that. My entire family are very Catholic. Um, sorry, mate, but they've heard you. They're ashamed of some of the stuff you say because you preach hate and discrimination. Um, I already pointed out why your argument against gay marriage was illogical, and it is because you're begging the question in your first premise. There is no logical argument against marriage equality or against equality in general in every part of life. Anyway, thanks Adam for uh, airing this, if you do, if it makes a cut. Uh, Merry Christmas everyone, and um, spread the love. Take care. See ya. Hi, this is ABC Hammerstein answering Bernard Gaynor's question about subjective morality on the Herd Mentality podcast. There is no objective morality, but there needn't be, because there may be a morality that is best, that is meaningful. We just have to decide what values to base it on. But first I want to say that morality of religious is not objective anyway. For example, Christians make subjective judgments when selecting or cherry-picking their morals from their holy book. And thank goodness for that, we don't have slavery anymore. More importantly, morality exists outside of any one religion, both in other cultures and religions, and in the people that came before it. But what can we base a best meaningful morality on if it isn't objective? There are a few things we can expect of a good moral system. It should be internally consistent, no arbitrary exceptions and contradictions. It should be based on re reality, something measurable, how does it feel, what effect it actually has on the world, for example, does it minimize suffering. It should be based on evidence. One must be able to demonstrate harm, for example. And we would expect that it would be accepted by people on merit. Creating a best meaningful morality is challenging for complex issues, where there are trade-offs, winners and losers, for example, abortion, climate change, euthanasia. But there are also low-hanging fruits, easy no-brainers, like, for example, that two consenting adults should be able to love who they like, marry, be able to visit their dying loved ones, etc., because it does no harm to anyone and is none of my business. So on the podcast, Bernard Gaynor made the point that homosexuality is dangerous because it spreads HIV. Uh, quite frankly, I think that is total bullshit, and I have three main points to try and explain why I think that. Um, the first point I wanted to make is that the term homosexual sex is inherently nonsensical, um, basically for the reason that every sexual act that's performed by homosexuals can and is performed by straight couples as well. So that term homosexual sex really is just not a thing. Um, what we're talking about is anal sex. 
Um, and it's true that receptive anal sex is more likely to lead to HIV transmission than, for example, receptive vaginal sex. But it was mentioned on the podcast, and I think is worthy of mentioning again, that this is something that is done commonly by heterosexuals. So that's really just a non-point, in my opinion. Um, the second point I wanted to make is that female-to-female spread of HIV is essentially zero. And for the record, is far less risky than heterosexual sex. Um, but I would assume that in Mr. Gaynor's mind, this is still considered homosexual sex. And I find it very odd that he would say homosexuality is dangerous because of the spread of HIV, when in fact, at least half of the homosexual population are actually practicing much safer sex when we're talking about HIV. Um, the last point I wanted to make is that when you look at HIV on a global scale, very sorry to say, but the vast majority of transmission occurs due to heterosexual sex. So when we're talking about the individual act of anal sex, that is more likely to lead to transmission, but overall, HIV is actually spread much more frequently through the heterosexual population. So overall, I would just say that Mr. Gaynor's assertion that homosexuality is dangerous because of HIV is just absolutely irrelevant to this conversation and holds no weight with me whatsoever, or I suspect anyone who knows anything about HIV. And I don't think I've ever said anal or sex so many times in the span of two minutes. This is C-Web from C-Web Sunday School, and I want to take this opportunity to respond to the theist Adam had on his podcast recently. There's so much to unpack and discuss, but since I only have one minute or two, I want to focus on faith and knowledge claims. During the discussion, words like evidence, logic, and reason were thrown around without any context on the theist side. Now, we can get into fact-throwing wars, but this will do little in disabusing a believer of their faith, because at the end of the day, it's faith that drives them. When faith, as a term, is used correctly, faith is a knowledge claim. Knowledge claims are usually backed by empirical evidence. We, as atheists, know how our interpretation of reality can be flawed, so we look to an objective measure of reality, and that is the scientific method. Subjective claims are not knowledge claims, and it usually comes down to one's unique experiences. Knowledge claims are objective because they assert a truth, so we should be able to test and come to a conclusion based on the evidence. If a believer is making a faith claim, which is to say a knowledge claim, We can then ask for evidence for such claim, but instead of dealing with facts because facts are on the side of the atheist, we should really focus on the underlying bad thinking, which is what faith is. Peter Bogazian, in his book A Manual for Creating Atheists, puts it this way, If one had sufficient evidence to warrant a belief in a particular claim, then one wouldn't believe the claim on the basis of faith. Faith is the word one uses when one does not have enough evidence to justify holding a belief. But one just goes ahead and believes anyway. What our theist friend was doing was making empirical claims. Empirical claims that were wrong. But if he continues to believe such claims, even though the evidence is against him, that is faith. That is the heart of religious belief and bad thinking. What we as atheists need to do is undermine that thinking. Ask questions. Get a better understanding of their position, like Adam does. Lead them to where you want to go and make them reevaluate their position or at least question their motives for thinking it. Don't attack religion as an institution. Attack faith, but do it without being a dick. And do it where you can point out the flaws in their thinking. One last thing. Before starting a debate with a theist, ask the theist this simple question. What evidence can I present to you that will get you to change your mind? Usually, theists will claim atheists are not open-minded enough to accept the truth about God. However, being a good skeptic, we know that we are open to evidence, and when presented with evidence that supports a claim, 
we are more likely to change our mind. A theist may not be so open, so ask this question, and depending on the answer you receive, you'll know how to proceed. If you are speaking with a Christian, ask this simple question. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Most likely they'll say yes. Then ask, what evidence can I present you that will get you to change your mind? If they don't give you anything, say this. What if a world-renowned archaeologist who is highly respected and his discoveries are in textbooks across the world claimed to have found the bones of Jesus Christ? Would you believe him? Would you change your mind about Jesus rising from the dead? They would usually respond in one of two ways. The first response would most likely be this. They would not believe him because they have faith that Jesus rose from the dead and they experience Jesus in their life personally on a daily basis. Knowledge claim followed by subjective evidence. Or the other response would be this. They would demand to see more evidence or question the validity of the claim of the archaeologist. They would do the very same thing we do when questioning religious claims. If these are the responses, they have demonstrated that they are not open to evidence and have a closed mind. Therefore, they are a victim of bad thinking. They are closed off. Or they would demand evidence for such claims, things we as skeptics and atheists do all the time when it comes to religious beliefs. This, my friends, is where we can demonstrate the failure of faith and bad thinking by attacking the source of the problem, and that's faith. Faith should not be lauded as a virtue. It is bad thinking. During this episode, they also talked about morality and several different aspects of that. If you want to know more on my view on morality, check out C-Web Sunday School, episode 30 at cwebsundayschool.com. Greetings, Adam, and all you herd mentalists out there. This is Bill from the Barroom Atheist Podcast. Adam, I'm responding to episode 33, the email that you read. It seems your guest is trying to assert that some type of objective moral standard slash objective truth exists. First of all, I challenge him to define what he means by that. Does he mean something external to humanity that isn't affected by humans? Then I, I don't believe him. I don't think he can demonstrate it. I would challenge him to so demonstrate. The fact that people can make bad arguments about morality does nothing for his case. As he stated in the email, person can make illogical or bad arguments about any moral issue, and they do, and that's what we observe. What we do is we debate these issues, we discuss these issues, and we use evidence to show which is the more beneficial moral choice. Anyway, anytime, anywhere, this is Bill from the bar room, signing out. Cheers, Adam. You're the man.